cool. So, Jackie, LaShawn, LaShawn, Jackie, listeners, LaShawn, Jenkins, mentor, teacher, community builder, <laughs> fitness guru, LaShawn. Thank These you. These are our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to your neighborhood. You're listening. You're listening to your neighborhood, a podcast for uncomfortable culture conversation, specifically about race. With Hannah and Jackie. So I've told Jackie just a little bit about why I originally wanted to reach out to you. Well, one, because it's been too long. Right. Two. Two, because. I've been thinking a lot as I've joined up with this podcast. The last tagline that Jackie says at the end is, make it a great day closer to history. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of slowly dawning on me the importance of that. And I mean, I'm ashamed to say how slow. (laughs) And I've been thinking a lot back to high school and trying to remember what I was taught and have forgotten and what maybe I wasn't taught. Right. I thought, who better than you, Hmm. who came up in the same school system as I did and then went back and taught history in that school system. Right. And now have, what degree did you just get? Well, I just finished a master's in school administration, so it just means that I know a thing or two about education now. (laughs) Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Because the most important thing with this podcast, LaShawn, is we are really in the business of having really the ultimate uncomfortable conversations. And if we know what's good for us, (laughs) we really have to talk about the educational piece of how history itself, how it's marketed to us and the effects of it on present day. Uh, I think one of the conversations we've had, Hannah, with you here and before is that we all sat in the same classrooms and were lied to, Mm -hmm. everybody, all of us. (laughs) So there are things that, yeah, that I'm just awakening to that are like, wow, you know, what is this, you know? And there are things that, you know, my other counterparts, European American or not, are just waking up to. And we're some, some of us, we're doing it at the same time. So we are grateful to have someone like you come and join us, not only from the aspect of the educator, but being a black male educator, which is something we know if we're going to build some generational wealth, (laughs) we need a whole lot more of those in the education system. And, you know, as, as just someone who has taken on the plight of educating on the past with present experiences. So gratitude to you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. And just to further imply what how perfect this is he wrote on facebook today lashawn i'm going to quote you to you you said i've learned that being uncomfortable is exactly what we need to develop as people to grow in capacity and to maximize our full effect on others and this is a podcast for uncomfortable culture conversations specifically (laughs) about race about race (laughs) right Good. I'm, I'm glad I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. So I'm completely okay with having some conversations that may create some discomfort, whether it's for me, whether it's through your listeners. But again, I'm, I'm a firm believer that nothing develops in our comfort zone. And so I'm completely okay with that. Yeah. So what led you to teach history? Ever since I was a kid, I can remember, and I'm going to try to remember as far back as probably 
I'm going to say seven or eight. I've always had this passion for society. I've always had this passion for the world. So I declared a history major, took a, an elective in political science, loved that even more. So I ended up double majoring in history and political science. And the rest is history. I just followed that path of what I was passionate about. I know why you did it. You did it so that you could say the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) So my first teaching job was at Tarboro High School. Yeah, so I spent 16 years here as a teacher, as a history teacher. And I went away for two years and served as an assistant principal at some other schools in our district. I'm excited about going into this next unpredictable year, year 20. So I'm excited. And what's your role for this year? I will be the assistant principal here. Oh, that's so cool, Sean. What prompted you to go back to school? So I realized that from where I sat as a teacher, and, I, and, and let me just preface this by saying, like, I absolutely loved teaching. I mean, and I still think that there's still a teacher that will always live inside of me. Like, I love teaching. But I also realized that that ability to teach expands beyond the classroom. And so I used to hear kids say, Mr. Jenkins, can we just stay in your class all day? We don't want to go to this class or that class. And I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be absolutely honest. Like, it used to it used to kind of really bother me. Like, what is it about our model of school that kids are not always fulfilled as people, as students? And I just said, you know what? Like, as long as I'm in the classroom, I can only impact just a segment of kids, right? But... If I go into school administration, like I get a chance to co-author that cultural change, that that educational pedagogy that needs to happen so that school becomes a place where every kid feels valued. Every kid feels that they have a place. And so I decided that I needed to grow in my capacity as a school leader and put myself in a position to where I can impact learning at a pretty high level. And so research shows that school administrators, principals, APs, sometimes can influence 25% of everything that happens in the building. And so I just realized that it was out of my comfort zone to leave the classroom, but I knew as far as the purpose for my life, I needed to expand in that area. So that's what prompted me 18 years later after finishing undergrad to go back to school. I went to NC State and finished my MSA and yeah, go pack. With the highest academic honor, I want to throw that in. So, um, <laughs> so, Do it. so yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's what brought about me to make that late life decision to go back to school. Speaking of the leadership portion of mm-hmm. being in the education system, so if there's something I'm a huge advocate for, it's education, right? And yeah, yeah. what I found is, is just being an advocate, I know the value of APs and principals. Mm-hmm. However, I find that it is very difficult, at least I know, I don't know how it is for you, just as a question Mm. of being activists in education, in a sense, Mm. because there's this line, you know, when when we look at really making an impact, right, you guys can, you have control of that facility, right, the, Mm -hmm. what what happens in your building, uh, but there are these things that are influenced and impacted by, Mm -hmm. you know, boards, commissions, authorities that directly will influence what you're able to do within your school. And I know I will know some principals that really push the limit and they Mm -hmm. use every bit because they have to. So have you found yourself being able to be an activist in education or whatever it is that you believe in within your school system while being in that position? 
as you said, I mean, some leaders may find themselves like um, in this in this marginalized place of of not only just serving as a professional leader, but how to find their personal voice in the profession that they're occupied in. And I don't know what that's like for a lot of leaders, but I honestly don't struggle in that. Most people who know me, whether it's before I was a teacher, before I was a school leader, like most people just through just my Facebook feed can probably tell the things that I'm really passionate about. You know, the social things I'm really passionate about. And so I, I don't really struggle to voice that because the things that I'm passionate about are things that we, that we need to talk about. And so in lieu of everything that's kind of happening in our country, like I've always been a, an advocate for the marginalized in the building. And sometimes the marginalized, it can be gender-based. Sometimes the marginalized can be students of color. And so whatever that marginalization looks like, I have found that I don't have a problem being that voice for that marginalization, but not just that voice, but also that agent of change, right? I mean, so in our schools, one thing we constantly do is we're constantly looking at data. We're constantly looking at achievement because like that kind of drives a lot of federal funding. Unfortunately, a lot of your funding is attached to performance. Sometimes your, your job security is attached to performance. And so I'm just, I'm just one who's like, you know what, like if data drives, then let's let data tell the story and not let people tell the story. Because data sometimes will share a narrative that we don't necessarily have the tools to share. And so, for example, when I look at my data, if I say, you know what, it, and this is just a hypothetical example, but it's a real example. If I look at data and say, like, hey, black males are, are at the bottom of, of all of the core subject areas in terms of performance. Okay, so that's not my opinion. If that's what data is saying, and granted, that data may be tangible, it could be that, I mean, let's keep it real, like, it could be that on test day, all of the black males had a bad day. I mean, but if that's, if that's the narrative that's being told, then, then our policy and our programming and our interventions should revolve around the narrative of what's being told. And so, for example, I started a program at my school. Um, to specifically target our male audience because I felt like, you know what, males need, and this, and maybe what I'm about to say is a little bit biased because I'm a male, but I felt like males, sometimes our different subgroups require different means of different interventions. And so, you know, we looked at discipline data, we looked at academic data and said, like, what can we do to make sure that the experience of our students and the needs of our students are being met? And so... Again, like I said, I mean, sometimes people are in marginalized places where they don't feel that they can, where they don't feel that they can personally advocate for the things that they need to advocate for. But I don't feel that I'm in that, um, in that category. Tell us more about the group that you started. I started a group called Game Changers and the acronym GAME stands for, the G stands for GIFTS. The A stands for academic excellence. The M stands for mission. The E stands for enthusiasm. And so what I wanted to do, I was like, you know what? If this male population is not exhibiting the motivation that they need, like maybe we need more hands-on approach with them. And so basically during their lunches every Wednesday, it's up to them. It's not like a mandated program. Any male who wants to come to Game Changers can. And so when they come, we have these short 15, 20-minute empowerment sessions. Um, that are creatively designed. It's not just we're just sitting around talking, but all the teaching is done through mnemonic devices. So, for example, like when so when kids leave, and you know, mnemonic devices is is one of the research ways to make things stick to kids. 
And so I wanted to create a space where young males, since this is the audience of, the, of, of students that's not performing, right? I wanted to create a safe space where young males could one, embrace the things that come along with being male and also be transparent enough to really deal with issues that we don't always deal with when it comes to males. Because the way we, and, and one thing, uh, Jackie, that I am, am very passionate about is we, we raise boys wrong sometimes, <laughs> right? We, we raise boys wrong. We, we don't necessarily raise boys and girls the same way. And sometimes the grace that we give young females or the, or the benefit of the doubt, we don't always give males. Sometimes we just say, you know what, boys? If you just tough it out, life will be okay. In the trench that I've worked in for 20 years, I've seen young boys, uh, and, and not just minority boys, but boys, period, like really suffer and struggle in life because they weren't nourished the way that they should be nourished. And, and because of social expectations and social norms, young boys weren't really loved the way that they should have been loved. And so a lot of times that creates like disaster, which means that sometimes you have young boys in your school that have the potential to be great but haven't been nurtured right. They haven't been loved the right way. They haven't been empowered the right way. And so as an assistant principal, not really having a lot of free time, I make it a priority that your future is so important to me that if it means that I've got to take 30 minutes, actually it's three sessions all the lunch. So if I've got to take an hour out of my day every Wednesday to invest in you and pour into you and help you realize that you're gifted, and help you realize that when you academically prioritize and when you confront life every day like you're on a mission and if you just bring that energy enthusiasm that you can be great and you can do anything you put your mind to and so that's one thing that is maybe not traditional that a school leader would do but i'm not really the traditionalist and i don't really operate through this cookie cutter model of what an ap should be like i'm me is it always popular i don't know i don't really ask people is it popular i do what's right for kids I love that you do that because it can be very easy. I worked in a school for a while and I know that it can be very easy to get caught up in meetings and you kind of right. lose touch with the student body if you That's don't right. have that. And especially if, if you are teaching but not connecting on a, a more individualized level. That's right. So I love that you're doing that. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, you know, the, the, the ripple effect is it builds relationships. It builds that safety. I mean, it's just one more avenue of like because we have that relationship it's like now i don't really have to deal with you only when you come to the office because something bad happened it creates that safe place that into that place of intervention where a kid might say you know what mr jenkins i'm really not my day is really not is off to a bad start it could be something that happened at home and so you can provide those interventions before disaster strikes so to speak and so we've seen some really good dividends we collect survey data and we realized that a lot of the boys told us that before this program Things were average for me. And the post data that we collected is that now kids are saying that my life is great in some areas that it was really bad in before. And so for anybody who says, like, how do you know it's working? We collect data and we and we let the kids tell the story and share their own narrative. And that's one of the big messages is that I tell kids, if you don't tell your narrative, then people will tell it for you. But when you give people the power to share your story, they'll share whatever story they want to share. And they'll also share whatever version of the story they want to share. So this is about voice discovery. And it's also about like self-empowerment to even find voice. That, I mean, I think that speaks perfectly to uh, what we're talking about or what we're going to get mm -hmm. into here today. It's about narratives, right? Um, mm -hmm. Recognizing, it sounds like you said, you know what? Something has gone wrong, right? With this section, right, right. with this, something's gone wrong. What is it? 
Um, and right. when we get into the context of history and education, I think we can say the same thing. Something right. has gone wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. In a sense, yeah. history has handicapped us, right? In some way, shape, or form. So just as, you know, you just talked about the boys and being able to reshape that narrative, so that walks us back to what narratives of themselves are they seeing, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's right. at home, which we can't necessarily control, but right, right mm -hmm. in the classroom, what narratives are they seeing? And I think one of the first things or uh, some of the first men that we are introduced to education-wise are George Washington, Christopher Columbus, <laughs> Lewis and Clark. Like it's, it's, right. these are the men that we're, that we're seeing. So I'd like to ask you, like, how, how do you feel history has handicapped your students and the history that you've been forged to tell? Well, I I, what I will say is, um, I, I think, and, and we'll specifically focus on history, but I think that any time that you're teaching anything, that any time you marginalize that core area, like, I think it's an injustice. And so, and I don't really have time to really walk us through, like, the historical development of the American educational system and how that was birthed through just Eurocentrism, right? Right. And I'll just speak from my own experience. And so... As a history teacher, you, you have a standard course of study that you teach, right? So, I mean, that's just, and, and, and at times that's really not like compromisable, right? You teach what the state says teach. But then at the same time, like, I think as a teacher, you have the autonomy to, to be innovative and to be creative. And that's where I always use that as a, as a space to integrate things that I knew that was important for kids. And I'll give you a, a great example of that. We're in Tarboro, North Carolina, but on the outskirts of Tarboro, and when I say outskirts, it's really not outskirts. It's like really like, it's about the same, but there's a town called Princeville. Princeville was the oldest community chartered by free slaves in America. And so it, it disturbed me years ago. I think now, like because of social media and the presence of like, you know, just civic organizations, I think that the, the, the story, the truth is out. Um, but it disturbed me that I had kids in my class who didn't know the sacred soil that they lived on, you know? And so I was just like, Hey, you don't know your, you don't know how Princeville was started. You don't really know like the his history behind it. And so I made it my business to insert that history, you know, just wherever I felt it was like a good place to integrate that local history. So for example, when I was teaching, you know, civics and economics, there is a unit on like local state and local government. And I always creatively designed a space where kids could learn their own history so that when they left my classroom, that they felt empowered to know that I don't just live in Princeville. I live in a place that, that was a swamp area and slaves, because they didn't have anywhere else to go, they, they cleared this place out through like straight up human labor and gutted this place out. Because I don't want you just to know you live in a historical community, but I want you to be so grateful for the soil that you walk on and understand your history, that you understand the power in who you are. And so but I believe that there's millions of instances where history gets lost between the cracks. And I think that's where... That's where we come into play as advocates, as educators. I think the greatest injustice in this world is telling a story, but not telling the whole story. And so for me, it was 
it was an ethical obligation for me to to not only just teach what I was supposed to teach, but to teach what I felt was missing as it related to the kids personally and as it related to the kids like socially. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I know firsthand that you're an excellent teacher, not only from what you're saying here, but my sister had you. So. <laughs> but a lot of parents are supplementing education. What tips and tools can you give to encourage critical thinking around history that we're given? I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in this learning platform, Bloom's Taxonomy. Yes. I'm a big Bloom's guy. And, Same here. Uh, <laughs> Same here. That, that sounds really weird. Nope. Uh, but so I, I love like, I love the idea of like, of helping kids learn how to comparatively analyze you know, like comparative, like analyzation. Like I love the fact that in my classroom, so let me just kind of put it in layman's terms so that if there's anybody listening to this, that, that's not really familiar with educational pedagogy or that kind of language, but it's just like, okay. So now it can't end where it's like, okay, anybody have any questions? High school kids are going to say, no, we got it. Right. But I need to know that not only you understand it, but now I need to know, can you make it like applicable? So it's like, okay, I've taught you something. Okay, now create me something. For example, um, okay, we're, we're disaggregating the Constitution, right? The, the Constitution unit was one of the most difficult units for students because they don't read the Constitution every day. And truly, the Constitution is not, is not necessarily written in a language that most sophomores in high school would, would understand. So I already knew the rigor attached to that. So when we did the Constitution, I'm like, okay, any question about... Article one, legislative article, any question about the president, any question about the Congress. OK, so you understand the Constitution. Right. So let's see if you understand how we make applicable that. So the next three days, we're splitting the class up into a bicameral system. Half of you will be members of the House of Representatives and half of you will be senators. And you get to decide what laws we're going to pass. And so kids say, hey, let's vote on legalization of marijuana. Hey, let's vote on same sex marriages. And we're going to operate for three days as if you are congressman because i want you to understand that now that we've read what you just read now i want you to understand the difficulty of creating like legislative and systemic change in the country and now after that now you're going to create a bill of rights for the school so through your voice and through student agency and through, through student choice what are some bill of rights that you would like to have for the school and the last piece of that is okay let's create a bill of rights for this class what are rights that you feel you should have when you enter in my class that I don't even have the power to marginalize? So between teaching that, between innovation, between creativity, and between student voice discovery and student autonomy, now the kids get it like, oh, okay, so now I get what this constitution is all about. It becomes pointless when you say, okay, we've learned the amendments. Any questions? Great. We're moving on to the next unit. So I think through Bloom's taxonomy, like teaching kids how to not only understand, but how to analyze and how to create and then make it applicable to their own life is how you really get kids to really develop those 21st century thinking skills and abilities to process those historical truths or or lack of thereof that's being delivered to them. I would even expound on that as a parent. A lot of the things that I teach my little citizens, sometimes I'm just now introducing myself to as well, especially when right. it, when we talk about social studies and the values that I have. And I would even suggest Googling Bloom's taxonomy and just looking at the verbs because we all kind of know, most of us know what mm -hmm. verbs are, right? We under, we get right. what 
uh, evaluate is, we get what create is, we get with uh, compare contrast is. And what Bloom's mm -hmm. Taxonomy does is allow you to take your surface level questions, not just with like supplementing curriculum, but with life questions and right. let you take it up a notch of really thinking, okay, so now I know, okay, now I apply, now I apply and tweak. Now I, you know, like mm -hmm. really getting our little citizens to, to, to transition their thinking from just knowing the information to using it in daily life. But right. it's a good tool. Right. And there's some cute little Pinterest stuff out there that you can <laughs> print off and have the verbs <laughs> so that, that, that parents can use. Not that I'm not a Pinteraster. But I know there's stuff there. Right. Well, I'm, I must say I'm not really the, the, the Pinterest uh, addict, but <laughs> I have heard of the word Pinterest, and yeah. I know what the gist of it is. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so speaking of your own moral compass to ensure that your mm. students are whole people, there is that piece within your work, like you said, where I get the core curriculum, I have to execute these things, and I'm, you're doing it with a sense of purpose, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. How do you feel the text that you've been working with, how has American history textbooks, and we used, we're not gonna get into that conversation of who made them and all those things, because y'all can go to, what is it, Texas, uh, and all the different textbook makers, because those are the folks that are passing us over the books. But in those texts that they're giving us, how do you feel like racism has been made invisible? I think that, and let me just kind of preface this and say that, you know, as a history teacher, believe it or not, in college, my passion was American history. But when I got to, when I accepted this first teaching job, they said, hey, you're going to teach world geography and world history, <laughs> you know, so um, and honestly, I taught that for a long time, only taught U.S. history for a couple semesters. And then I taught global studies and, and some civics. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm going to speak from a, a limited place. And I would even say because you mentioned geography, world geography is just the uses of maps, right? How maps have been used to scale and shape minds, disfigure. I think a lot. Right, right, right. right. And so I, I, exactly. Great question. And so how has textbooks played a role in that is, I think, is an easy answer. Textbooks have have marginalized the, the full narrative. And so it's funny because the last I would say the last five or six years that I was in the classroom, I didn't really use the textbook, you know, um, for several different reasons. Uh, one is because, you know, and, and sometimes textbook funding is not always there. And so like literally like and I think it's like the way the education is being molded. Like my class was like literally like just I created the curriculum off of just resources and not so much a book. And I think that that's you're able to expose kids to more primary sources. I think that when you use a textbook, you literally are limited based on what's in the book. And I think we all know that like in every book, like you're just not, the whole story is just not going to be in the book. A lot of times books can be written from more of a social perspective and not so much like a, a political perspective. Some history books you'll read it and it's more of like an economic focus. And so I realized that. And so for me, I always wanted to expose kids to all different angles. So, for example, if you're teaching, um, if you're teaching the institution of slavery, like I think it's important that you don't just teach it from the social perspective and the racial perspective. 
I need you to understand the economic implications of, of slavery. I need you to understand the social implications of slavery. I need you to understand like the short-term implications and the long-term implications of slavery. So I think that a book is not going to really do a, 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 a chapter or a theme or a unit justice because if you go through all those different channels of a subject, one chapter might be 100 pages, right? And so it's just easier just to kind of give like a watered-down presentation uh, of whatever subject area you're using. So I guess to answer your question, I think sometimes the intention is not necessarily to to empower you through the text. I think sometimes some of the history books I've seen is just to expose you to some of the text. And exposing me to a text that I don't find empowering, I think is is probably an injustice as well. Yeah. To your point, I, I'm thinking about the time that we're in right now, something, Hannah, you're like very, a very huge advocate about is being anti-racist, right? And those sorts of things, like what do we know about John Brown? Do, do we learn about, did we learn about him in, you know, and I think for both sides, if we're just talk speaking, black Americans and European Americans, like both sides don't get to see the layers that has come with our complex history on racism and now the the word anti-racism because those two things are important in what we are today and i think also well for me it was always there's an there's an ethical dilemma that exists especially as a history teacher it's really tough for some people to teach truth but to teach truth without like marginalizing because you know sometimes through your truth you can marginalize other subgroups at the same time. And so my goal as a teacher was, regardless of what history tells us, regardless of the truth, whatever the truth tells us, then you're not defined by this truth. And so my my point is, I, I never wanted any of my kids to leave my classroom feeling guilty, feeling empowered at someone else's degradation. And so I, I always wanted to equip my kids to just own history. And just own it for for the value of it, you know, but to not be defined by by that history, you know. Um, and I think that's one mistake we make. Like sometimes like as we can as we're living in America right now, like we're still defining folks by, you know, by history. You know, we're still marginalizing people. We're still crippling people by history, by where, what chapter we think they should that they should be in. You know, what I'm saying I mean. Women are still paying a price, right? I mean, women are still fighting for uh, for mobility, social mobility, economic equality in our country, you know, despite what history has defined the role of women as, you know? So I just think that there's so many moving pieces that are happening at all times, um, you know, in a history classroom that it really requires, and I'm just glad that I'm this way. I, a lot of my friends think I'm just super OCD, but I'm highly reflective and I'm always conscientious of what I'm saying and how it affects my my students. And so like I was I used to practice my lectures before I gave them in the mirror sometimes because I wanted to make sure that if there's any flaw in any implicit covert or overt bias, I want to catch it first because sometimes we say things before we think and or either we put things out there before we realize like wait a minute, maybe that didn't come out right. And once it's out there, it's out there, right? Yeah, speaking 
as my old high school self, you can tune in and tune out and catch right. one thing and that be the thing that you catch. And, and for me, I'm right now feeling like I'm going through all this stuff that some of it rings a bell and I remember mm-hmm. a little bit about. And, and I know as, as a learner, I need to hear things a couple of times. When you mentioned about Princeville, I remember, I know I've been told that, but yeah. it's hitting me freshly now, maybe mm-hmm. because of all the, all the texts I'm reading and everything. So coming back around and hit and sinking into a deeper place in me hearing it right. this go round i am dealing with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame which are not really helpful for me to be a better um co-conspirator on this path but they but it is a huge trap for me so it's interesting to hear you mention how do you teach the truth how do i also teach my children this truth without getting them stuck in these big traps that can come along with it and we are in a <laughs> we are in a very interesting place as a people as a humanity and i was just telling one of my students like you know what like i never thought that some of the history that i used to teach i never thought that in my lifetime that i would see it come at full circle and this might be very radical but i'm tell you i told one of my former students i said it feels like i did not i wasn't alive in the 50s and 60s i said but it feels like we're back in the 50s and 60s based on what I'm seeing, based on what I'm hearing, based on the way I'm seeing people treat each other. And I'm like, wow, like who knew that 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 chapter of history would be resuscitated in a way that wouldn't necessarily be resuscitated for our growth, but for our crippling. And so I don't really don't have a prepared answer for this, but just to hear you say like, look, like I checked in and out in high school. Some of this stuff is 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 coming back. But but Hannah, as a learner, you should never feel guilty about anything because what you're doing is really powerful. You just acknowledge that there's some things that I kind of knew, but not sure if I truly knew it. But I'm going back and I'm kind of redealing with some stuff and I'm reprocessing. And I'm going to tell you what, that's the first step of, of healing um, in our country. That's the first step of healing in humanity. It's just simply acknowledging the fact that, that some of these things happened. And in order for us to move forward, like you got to acknowledge, right? But you got to understand there's people in this world who don't, they're still Holocaust revisionists, people who say the Holocaust never happened. So how can healing take place if there's still people saying that didn't happen or it happened, but it wasn't too bad. That's, that's, we're radicalizing it. It wasn't 6 million. It might've been 6,000. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that's where, that's where the crippling happens is when A, we don't acknowledge and B, we don't fully acknowledge and so I don't want you to say guilt again, Hannah. Um. I will. I will. I'm working on it. I'm trying to work on it in my own space, but also to right. acknowledge because maybe some of our listeners are feeling that same way. And it That's can right. be very lonesome because I don't mm-hmm. want to center myself with that feeling, but I also don't want to get buried by it when I'm working independently. You know, it's funny that you mention uh, the Holocaust and these type of things, because I do remember very clearly when I was learning some of the stuff in history, thinking, how could people let this happen Hmm. when it was in a history book? And I was thinking, I thought, because at the time I didn't understand what was still happening right under my nose, right around me. And so I was thinking, what was wrong with these people, these bystanders? And I hope that I would be different than that. I thought, surely I'll be different than that. And now is this moment in time where we really get to see, I mean, you really get to see who you are. 
Hannah, history is so, um, and I don't know if it's why I was always drawn into it, but I remember, you know, learning about the Holocaust in like the third grade and you're just like, wow, Hitler was the worst person ever. And then you grow up and realize Hitler wasn't the first Hitler, you know? I mean, you know, you start learning about King Leopold in the Congo in the 1800s and the scramble for Africa. And you start learning about guys that we love, like Cecil Rhodes, you know, like it's it's scholarly to be a Rhodes scholar, but we don't really know what he did in Rhodesia or former Zimbabwe. And and then I went to Rwanda in, in 2009 and realized like what happened in Nazi Germany in the 40s that we say would never happen again, happened again in the 90s and it's still happening in some other places. And here's the deal, it happened in the 90s and there's people like, wait, genocide, Rwanda, what's that, you know? And so, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of moving pieces, but the only thing we can do is just stuff like this. I really let me just kind of pause and plug. I really appreciate you guys doing this. This is phenomenal. This is awesome, I, and just raising awareness and raising your voice and helping people discover theirs, regardless of how they feel, but giving people the space to at least start these communications. I think again, I just believe that that's where our acknowledgement and healing has to has to start. And just and even if that acknowledgement is we got to do something drastically different in our institutions of learning, in our then guess what? Fine, but you at least confront it. You can't really defeat what you won't confront. Well, game recognize game. It's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing the exact same thing, and that's right. that's why we wanted to call you in. I thank you so much. I appreciate that. I think that's a Jackie. I see your wheels still turning. No, oh yeah, my wheels are <laughs> always turning. I know that I'm processing a lot and right. you know, and I think about you know what you're saying and how it how it works for changing our own worlds I'm a strong advocate of no one in this room or any other room that is hearing this is going to change the world it's not going to happen you're not mm -hmm. going to do it but you can change your world so um, mm -hmm. how do we take this information and alter our own reality so in my head, I'm processing, you know, what is the so what now what at this point um, as it pertains to history, text, um, telling stories, narratives and, and understanding specifically for black Americans that you know, our narrative um, is also a part of our wealth. And so I guess I'm going to roll into so what now what. So I would say, so what we know that there are things within our control with regards to textbooks, with regards to education, with regards to supporting our educators, right? So much as we can. And I think that it's really important that wherever you are, you understand how your school system works, build a relationship right. with those who can, uh, because uh, ch our children walk into the brick and mortar with mm -hmm. their stuff and uh, that we can't expect that there's going to be a LaShawn T. Jenkins in every class <laughs> that is that is innovative, and will, but we also cannot hold it against them. So I right. think that there's a level That's of responsibility right. as a community that we take on the, um, on the backside. I think the now what is, if historical context is something that is important and valuable to you, and it's not necessarily an investment that you can make within your home, because let's be real, some people, it's like, I see my kids for two hours a day, and I'm trying to you know, make it work. Well, COVID has changed that, but 
but right. uh, that time is also an investment uh, that look at your as best you can sometimes it just takes a simple email i looked at our school board documents and found out that there is a area for local curriculum where we as right. the local citizens can pull together some things, get it, work with, you know, the educational specialists at the administrative level and bring things to the forefront that we feel are important That's in right. our own school systems curriculum. That's like right. there's a means and a way to do that. And many hands make the light work. So even if you're not right. the person that's able to stand up at that school board meeting at seven o'clock on a Thursday night, I think it's time that we start organizing around this issue. If it's of something that's value to value to you. And supporting our right. educators, grateful for the bravery and the courage that um, Assistant Principal Jenkins has to yeah. to show up. So that's my now what. Yeah. And as we say, Hannah, we're always available to just say, look, I don't even know where to look. We can go to that Dagum website together because oftentimes these things right. aren't written like they should be for that's us right. adults to really understand what the heck the school systems and are trying to get across in their policies and procedure and vote in your school board elections. Right, if, exactly. If you and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we do. Um, and I just one thing I just want to say is, and this is three things that I have in this last two months of of COVID and just social discourse, I guess you could say. I have created this rule, and I call it my three V's. And these and these rules are rules that I hold for myself, and the and the price that I pay for being a social advocate, an educator, a leader. But I've told myself that no matter what happens from this point on in, in, in the history of this country, whatever, that I'm going to be vocal and I'm going to be visible and I'm going to be vigilant. So that means that, like, I can't ever negate my voice because where people don't have access to your truth, I found that people will sub in lies. And so my voice is important. As a person, my voice is important as a leader, as a professional, as an African-American male, my voice is important. And not only is my voice important, but people need to see me. They need to see courage. They need to see resilience. They need to see fortitude. They need to see determination. And not only that, but when I do show up, when I do speak, I need to be vigilant. I need to be consistent. And I need to drive home the things that need to be driven home relentlessly so that people understand through my passion my purpose. Hannah, so what now what? So I am revisiting history. I'm teaching myself as much as I can so that not only so that I understand it, I think what happened along the way for me is that I learned a lot of things and they went into my cells in my body and I was able to navigate for myself what was right based on that information. And then I kind of like lost the the dates and the facts and the names <laughs> but i knew this is the way forward but it's not helpful when i'm trying to bring other people along to to explain my why if i can't go back to these things right. so i'm trying to revisit that information so that it's ready for me when i need to be able to walk some people through it be able to pull people in and explain where i'm coming from um, and also to do it in a way that I don't get so emotional and that's not, um, that emotion is a bad thing, but that, um, that I don't go off the feelings thermometer. So I can't, I can't make sense anymore. I want to be able to stay calm and focused and clear with my messaging. So revisiting history is a big part of that. And then the other is I'm going to 
visit Bloom's Taxonomy and learn from you guys. I'm so grateful that I know both of you as I'm trying to bring up little citizens <laughs> that I have you guys <laughs> tell me stuff in my ear and that I can go look up and learn and pass on. Yeah. I love the Socratic uh, method as well, mm-hmm. you know, because we're taught like, hey, two plus two equals four. Okay, let me give you four and you tell me all the ways you can get two four. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I, I, yeah. I like that too as yep. well. So um, Yeah, love know. that. Yeah. Do you have anything for the little citizens? For the little citizens, man, I'll just say this. Um, when you were just saying like, what? So what now? So what, what now what? So what now what? Okay, when you were talking about like, none of us can change the world. But, but that resonated to me, one of my favorite quotes by Gandhi. And that quote is, to the world you may be one, but to one you may be the world. And so maybe I can't change the world all at once. But if I can make a difference and impact one person, and change their world, and that become a domino effect, then it's for that reason that I believe there's still hope in the world. And so, to the little ones, you can change people, you can change the world, your life is not in vain, and I just don't believe that we're created just to live minimal lives. I believe that we're all great, and there's greatness in all of us, and we can do great things. Amen. Can I put some mustard on that? Can I put some mustard on to the... You can put some mustard okay, on that. to the older ones, there is no... It's never too late to make a change. Mm-mm. It's never, never too, too late. late. It's never too late. Never and to the late. older ones, maybe we ought to pay our teachers what we pay our doctors so that we don't have to depend on life circumstances How about making that? you be in the classroom with a ton of exactly. our kids that we want to be learning from you. How about that? Exactly. How about that? That's that's what Hannah, you just that's that's it. That that was the piece right there. That was the period exclamation point. Man, you just killed it. Pay what you owe. So <laughs> until next time. Stay open, stay curious, take a baby step to betterment, and make it a great day closer to history.